Glad to see everybody out this week. Appreciate you coming and being in the class. We've got some things to talk about as we get going back on our study. We've been studying about the chain of events and the people involved in the events that span from the Last Supper up to whenever Jesus was turned over to be scourged and then crucified. And last week we had them in the garden where they came in the interaction that, uh, that we saw between Judas and the guards that came to get Jesus, to arrest Jesus, and the exchange that they had. And then we jumped ahead a little bit and we talked about Judas' reaction whenever he saw Christ actually arrested and how he was pulled away and the emotions that Judas had and that Judas wound up uh, going and hanging himself after he went and took the silver back to the chief priests and the, the Pharisees. And so that got us up to today. Now what we're going to start talking about today, we're going to meet some new characters in this. We've talked about the chief priests a little bit, but we're going to start out our study tonight talking about Caiaphas who was the high priest. So off the top of your head, what do you know about Caiaphas or what do you know about the person that was the high priest there in Jerusalem? All right. So we'll be able to learn pretty easy. All right, the high priest Caiaphas, he was the supreme civil head of the Hebrew people. In other words, the civics part of it within the city of Jerusalem uh, the Hebrew people, he was the supreme head of the Hebrew folks. The high priest was distinguished from his fellow priests by the clothes that he wore, the duties that he performed, and the particular requirements were placed on him as the spiritual head of God's people. So the high priest was definitely distinguished from the rest of the folks that were there in the hierarchy of the Jewish people. Caiaphas was in charge of the temple treasury. He controlled the temple police and the lower-ranking priests. Uh, as well as the attendants. As the high priest, Caiaphas was the chairman of the court of the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin, you know, we're going we're gonna to see some interaction with the Sanhedrin here pretty soon because they've, they've arrested Jesus and they've taken him from the garden and that's where they're headed. That's where they're going to wind up with the Sanhedrin. So Caiaphas is going to be involved in this interaction that we're going to see tonight. So the most important responsibility of the high priest was to conduct the services of the Day of Atonement. Does that sound familiar to you, the Day of Atonement? Is there anything that you remember about that from the Old Testament? The priests offered sacrifices for the people. Exactly. Priests sacrifices for the people. So Caiaphas being the high priest, uh, he was responsible for this, and it was his most important responsibility. On the tenth day of the seventh month of each year, he alone entered into the holy place inside the veil before God. He made sacrifice for himself and for the people. Uh, this traces all the way back to Exodus chapter 30, verse 10, and you can also find that in Leviticus chapter 16. Jesus acts as our high priest today, and uh, you can see that, uh, the comparable there in that is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 28, where that comparable is made with Jesus being our high priest today. Caiaphas was also a member of the ruling, of one of the ruling Jewish, uh, Jewish sects. You know, which Jewish sect was Caiaphas a, a member of? Pharisees or Sadducees? Well, there was Pharisees and Sadducees both. That's right. They, they were a little bit. Um, the Pharisees were, were more numerous, but at this point the Sadducees actually had 
They did. There was, there was more Sadducees on the Sanhedrin than there was Pharisees. And Caiaphas was actually a Sadducee. So him being the high priest, with him being the high priest and then him, them having a multitude of uh, Sadducees, uh, they would have control of the Sanhedrin at this point. So like was mentioned, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. And here's several other things about the Sadducees. They were often wealthy men of high position. And as they sought to appease the Roman rulers, they were heavily involved in politics. <clears throat> Usually not a good thing to mix those two things. So the Sadducees um, had the majority in the seat in the Sanhedrin in the Jewish high court over which Caiaphas ruled for 18 years. So in terms of theology and what they believed, uh, the Sadducees denied, denied the afterlife and any existence of the spiritual world. They didn't believe in angels or demons or you know the possession of folks like what we saw in Jesus' time. I don't know how they dealt with that if they didn't, didn't believe in it. <clears throat> but think about the difficulty that they would have had as Sadducees not believing in the resurrection whenever Jesus resurrected one of his friends. Do you remember what friend it was that Jesus resurrected? Lazarus. So I often wonder, how did, how did the Sadducees deal with that? And Caiaphas, as the high priest, how would he have dealt with that as well? Because they didn't, they didn't profess to believe in that. So here Jesus is, actually goes and raises Lazarus. And of course, that was wide, widely known, widespread in, uh, around Jerusalem. So they would have had to, uh, I guess, find a way to sweep that under the rug or try to explain it away. So they didn't believe in that. Um, Think about where Jesus would go and teach. Where was the place that most often that Jesus went to teach? In the synagogue. So he was in the synagogue and the temple a lot. Where was it that Jesus turned over the tables of the money changers? <coughs> synagogue again, wasn't it? So if you think about that, and if you think about Caiaphas being the high priest, and he was control head of all the other priests, and he had control of the synagogue, and had to have control of the temple treasury. He controlled the guards, pretty much everybody that had to do with the temple. Then here's Jesus going in and teaching almost daily in the temple and teaching a different doctrine. Here he is raising Lazarus. And that's something that they totally didn't believe in. And then he's going in and turning over the money changers' tables. You know, whenever you back up and look at this and you realize all this, you know, spiritually, financially, politically, Caiaphas would struggle with Jesus' teaching. So there was a lot of reasons why Caiaphas would be against what Jesus was there doing and the teaching that Jesus had. There was no part of his life that was safe from the disruption that Jesus was causing in and around this area because of Jesus' teaching. So as we get into the story, bear that in mind, every aspect of Caiaphas' life and everything he was responsible for was being touched by Jesus' teaching in some way. So he couldn't get away from the constant uh, surfacing of hearing about Jesus and what Jesus was doing. Um, there was an interesting discovery made in 1990. Workers were widening a road in Jerusalem's Peace Forest. I don't know where that is, but it's somewhere there around Jerusalem. They were doing some road work. They were widening a road. And they accidentally dug into a large cavernous burial site. And let me see which way to turn this. Is it on? There it is. <clears throat> so... They dug into this burial site, and, and the archaeologists found a family tomb inside this burial site. And what you're looking at here is a picture of what's called an ossuary. It's an ornate ossuary, which that's a fancy way of saying a bone box. So whenever, whenever people passed away and they were buried or put wherever they were put, 
whenever they decomposed away, they would take their bones and then they would store them in a box. And I guess, you know, given the space, that was probably an easier way to store folks. And sometimes there would be multiple people uh, stored in, in one of these cave type areas, like a burial place. And this is actually supposed to be the box that belongs to Caiaphas. And the reason they think that is on the side of the box, you can see kind of scratched into the side of it. Now compared to the front of it, look how ornate that is. All the detail that's carved into it, and there's little squares on the top uh, with little rope type things. It's very ornate, and it's made out of limestone. So on the side of it, there's something that's been carved into it. And what it says here on the side of it is uh, Joseph, son of Caiaphas. And this fits what the first century Jewish historian, Jewish historian Josephus said when he described the high priest as Joseph, who's called Caiaphas of the high priesthood. Scientists examined the bones inside this box and they believe it to be Caiaphas too. Now, this is secular stuff. This isn't inspired. This isn't from the Bible. This is things that men have found and they've looked at this and they see the inscription on it that says, um, you know, uh, Joseph, son of Caiaphas. And then you have Josephus that writes, that correlates with that, that, that uh, says the same type of description of the Caiaphas that was in the priesthood. And then scientists examined these bones and it was the bones of around a 60-year-old man, and the timeline that they've got on this box and around the age that the Caiaphas would have been, it fits. And there was also a lady and a couple of children's bones in this box with them too. So secular history tells us that this is the burial box of Caiaphas, who is the Caiaphas that we're going to read about. And like I said, it's, it's secular history, and um, you know Josephus writes a lot of stuff that correlates with what's taught in the Bible. So, you know, it's interesting to look at this stuff anyway, so take it for what it's worth. <clears throat> so where we're going to start out is in, in Matthew 26 and verse 57. It's where we'll start in the Scriptures tonight. And we're going to read Matthew's account of whenever they take Jesus from the garden to be put in front of the Sanhedrin, which, you know, Caiaphas is the one that's going to lead the conversation. In Matthew 26 and verse 20, uh, 57, he says, "...and those who had laid hold of Jesus led Him away to Caiaphas the high priest." where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and when he went and sat with the servants to see the end. So Peter's followed along, and he's, he's following behind them, and he went and sat in the courtyard. And remember, remember he had got by the fire, and he was warming himself because it was a cool night. We remember we read that in another one of the accounts. And Peter wants to see the end. He wants to, go, he wants to see what's going to come of this and what they're going to do with Jesus. Now verse 59 says, Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put Him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. Um, but at least two false witnesses came forward, but at last two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I'm able to, to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest rose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? which he's talking to Jesus, and he said, do you, do you answer nothing? You don't have anything to say? And what is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Verse 64 says, Jesus said to him, It is as you said, Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? So he's asking the rest of the Sanhedrin, what do you think? So they answered and said, he's deserving of death. And then they spat in his face and beat him 
and others struck him with the palm of their hands, saying, Prophesy, prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one that struck you? So why did the high priest, why did Caiaphas here tear his clothes? Have you ever thought about why he done that? I know a lot of times we see them tear their clothes when they're upset and things happen. I guess I've always assumed that, but there's more to it than that. So why did he tear his clothes? So according to the Jewish law or the Jewish custom that become law, when the high priest was about to sentence someone to death or he was going to pass a death sentence on someone, they would rent or tear their clothes and that was a symbol of a torn relationship between this individual and the Jewish people. And they would not repair that robe as a symbol of the fact that that was going to be an unrepairable relationship from that point forward. When they were sentenced to death, then that was going to be a final, that's a, that's a final thing. So that was a symbol of that when they would tear their clothes. So he tore his clothes. When he tore his clothes, he really hadn't heard from the rest of the Sanhedrin yet, but you know, they're, they're looking for something. They wanted something to be able to take Jesus to, to Pontius Pilate about, and they think they found it here with this. So they're going through the process. He's torn his clothes, and they've said that they want to sentence him to death. So another thing that's interesting about this is uh, could the Jews... Could, could the Jews sentence someone to death? Could they carry out the act of putting someone to death? Was that possible? Someone say no? It was. Now, they could sentence them. They had the power. The high priest had the ability to sentence them, but they couldn't carry it out. So they could pass the sentence on Jesus, but they still had to go to the Roman government to get that signed off on is the only way they could do that. So it's, it's interesting that they could pass this, that they could decide they wanted to do this, but they still couldn't carry it out. So John 18 and 31, we'll see them state this as a fact. So if you want to turn over to John 18 and 31, then you know, we'll, we'll back this up with Scripture. And this is jumping ahead a little bit. This is, this is getting into Pilate, but I want to put this in here because it explains why they have to take him to Pilate in the first place. So it's John 18 and 31. And then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. It would be death at the hands of the Romans, is what that would be. So we knew that he was going to be crucified. The Romans were the only ones that could do that. So we know as Christians, or we know as Jewish, Jewish people at that time, we know that he was going to be crucified and the Romans had to do it, but they weren't allowed to put people to death either. That was part of the law that they lived under. Another interesting thing that I thought about, and we won't, we won't get over into that, is something Don and I have talked about before, is do you remember someone that, and we're, we're getting over into Acts whenever you get into this conversation, do you remember someone that the, the Jews passed judgment on and then put him to death at the moment, just right away? And this will go back into Don's Acts study. Do you remember the chapter and who that was that was put to death immediately because he offended the Jews? Stephen. Stephen. So my question was, Don and I talked about this, my question was, is with Jesus here, they were being very careful and they couldn't just put him to death. I mean, they were, they were having the Feast of Passover. People were real busy with that. They were busy with a lot of other things. They're, they're going at night. They're getting him out of the garden. They're dragging him away. They're having this court at night, which is not what they would normally do. It's not the right thing to do. I started to say kosher. You know, I don't know if that's the right thing to say with it being a Jewish court, but it's not the kosher thing or the right thing for them to do in the middle of the night. So they're violating all these Jewish laws that they've got in place to govern their court. 
But here they won't go ahead and put Jesus to death. So, But they did Stephen. So what do you think the difference is there? Why did they go ahead and just stone Stephen? We're living under the same rule. They're, they're captive to the Romans still. Why would they stone Stephen but they wouldn't, wouldn't do this with Jesus? Jesus had a bigger following. Jesus had a big following. We talked a little bit too. There's a couple of more things. Anybody else have any more ideas what it might be? Yeah, because leading into this, we saw multiple times that they didn't want to cause a turmoil or they didn't want to do it in front of the people and they were afraid of the people. We saw that. I think also, you know, all these things are right and combined. I think also with Stephen, I think they got so angry so fast and I think there was a mob gathered up and the power of the mob at the moment, it wasn't just the Sanhedrin and it wasn't just the chief priests that were doing this. It was a group of them that were all angry at the same time and they were empowering to each other and they ran on Stephen and did it, and I think they did it in the moment. Now, whether they kept that secret, you know, they drug him outside the city, and, and uh, whether they kept that secret or not, I don't know, but I found it interesting that they've got all these laws to govern them, yet they don't, they don't often go by the laws that they're supposed to be going by. Um, going forward, compared to Matthew and Mark, uh, co compared to Matthew, Mark doesn't differ in his account very much. I know we've looked at the different accounts to see far as what they experienced and what they saw, each one of the apostles that wrote these books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all had a different perspective, but Mark's doesn't really differ much uh, from Matthew, and Luke's is very short. I mean, there's not much said in Luke, in Luke about whenever they take Jesus to the high priest. <clears throat> John's, though, very interesting. John tells us some things that we don't get out of the rest of them, and we, we get into a whole different discussion with John. So we're going to go back over to John chapter 18 and we're going to look about verse 12. <clears throat> so remember, this is leaving the garden and they've got, him, they've got him bound. John 18 and verse 12, And then the detachment of the troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him, and they led him away to Annas first. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. You know, that's over in John chapter 11, verse 45 through 54. So if you want to turn over there, we'll look at that moment when Caiaphas advised the Sanhedrin, advised the other Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. It'll explain what that means. Verse 14 there refers to John 11, 45 and 54. Starting in verse 45, it says, And many of the Jews who had come to Mary had seen the things Jesus did, believed in Him, but some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. So you had, you had people seeing the things that Jesus done, and they believed on Him, but you also had some, whether they believed or not, and it kind of sounds like they probably didn't believe as much as the ones that really did believe, but they went to the Pharisees and told the Pharisees the things that Jesus did. So they kind of stirred things up. Verse 47 says, And the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For the man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And this is important. The Romans will come and take away both our place and the nation. And what do they mean by take away our place and the nation? Their power. So we see that Caiaphas himself has control of the temple, he has control of the money, he has control of the guards. But the rest of these priests are enjoying that same benefit. They have power, they have notoriety, they're probably living pretty good, probably making money off of things. We see the money changers. Jesus turned the tables over for a reason. 
So I think there was probably some skimming going on there with the money changers. So they're saying that if Jesus keeps teaching these teachings that's so different than anything that we know and anything that, that we've lived by all these years, then the Romans are going to get tired of the turmoil. They're going to get tired of the, the struggle or the difficulty that's going on here, and, and they're going to come because Jesus is going to rise up. The Romans don't want a king. The Romans don't want someone rising up. They've got Caiaphas in place as the high priest who is, who, who is I guess, the supreme authority for the Jewish people. He's kind of works between the Roman government and the people, the Jewish people, and he works with Pilate. You'll see that, although it's not a... They don't love each other. They do work together. You'll see that as we go forward, but they're saying if Jesus keeps doing this, then you know they're going to come and, and take away our place and our nation. And verse 49 says, And one of them, Caiaphas, and you'll get some insight to Caiaphas here with how he speaks and what he says, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient, which means profitable, for us that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. So Caiaphas, with his fellow, with his fellow priests, he said, You guys don't know anything. You know, you don't know anything. What you need to know is, is that it's expedient or profitable for one, for one man to die so that the whole nation and our people should not. So basically Caiaphas says, you guys don't get it. Um, he needs to die for our nation so our nation doesn't have to. Verse 51 says, Now this he did, not to say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Another interesting thing to me, why is that statement interesting? Or what do you get out of that statement? Caiaphas does a prophecy here. Yeah, and that was coming. Yeah. Um, what else would be interesting about the fact that Caiaphas prophesied, that God allowed him to prophesy here? And what I think I used, used that to point out. People say that if a person has a spiritual gift or can prophesy, that means the Holy Spirit's in them, which indicates they're saved. Hmm. But Caiaphas is obviously lost. He's putting Christ to death, and yet the Holy Spirit is prophesying to him. It shows that yeah. uh, a person prophesying doesn't necessarily indicate they're saved or lost. It has nothing to do with their state of salvation. God is using him in this moment. Like Don's saying, he's not, Caiaphas is not where he needs to be. He's not down the middle of the road in the right spot where he needs to be. He's way off. And he's entrenched in these worldly things. He's worried about money. He likes this power. He likes all this stuff. He's not who he needs to be, but yet God prophesies through him. And um, that shows that God has used him to do this prophecy, to have it written here in this Word so that we can see that this is part of what is leading up to the crucifixion of Christ and everything that's about to happen. And even though Cephas is not who he needs to be, God still uses him uh, to say this prophecy, and I don't think he realized really what he was saying when he said it. He didn't have any any idea really how that was this was going to come to be. Um, I'll go back and, and read that again. It says now, 
Um, and now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for that na not not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. So that's interesting to me, that interchange or exchange between them. And then the other accounts don't mention them. Like if you look back up here, earlier it says that they took him to Annas first. The other accounts really don't mention that, so that's curious to me too. So we're going to jump back over to John 18 in verse 12, and then we'll go through John's. John has the most interesting description of all these things that happens. John 18 in verse 12. We'll go back there. Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. They're leaving the garden now, remember. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. And now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that was it expedient that one should die for the people. Verse 15 says, And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Another disciple. But it doesn't really say who the disciple is. Uh, it says, But Peter stood in the door outside, and then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, some say it was Judas. Some say it was John. I have a hard time believing it was Judas. Could have been John, but it doesn't really say. Whatever we think is conjecture. Um, I guess we could have an opinion about who that could be, but it's curious. Whoever it was, they knew the high priest. And they were able to you know, help. He and Peter got in to be able to see what was going on. He went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. And then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you're not also one of the man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. And that's the first denial that, that Peter had of denying Christ. And then in verse 18, now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coal, stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Verse 19 says, The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. So who is Jesus talking to here? The high priest, Jesus, about his disciples and his doctrine. Who's he talking to? Who's Jesus talking to? says the high priest, right? So hold that thought. We'll go a little further and then we'll come back. So the high priest asked him about his disciples and his doctrine. And then verse 20, Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always met. And in secret, I've said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me, uh, have heard me what I said. Indeed, they know what I've said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil, but if well, why do you strike me? Verse 24 says this, And Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. What do you think about that? We had two answers. One said Caiaphas and one said Annas. I've always assumed it says the high priest. Caiaphas is the high priest. But how could that be? Verse 24 says, Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. Have you ever thought about that? 
Yes. Caiaphas was his son-in-law. So it's interesting to me how John describes this. John goes about some of this, just fascinating how he describes these things. And he, you know, he's the only one that tells about they led, they led him away to Annas first. And then when he gets down here to the bottom, you know, he's calling him the high priest all the way through it. Now this is inspired, right? John's inspired. So he shouldn't be writing something that's wrong. So there's got to be an explanation for it. According to Jewish law, there could only be one high priest at a time. That was the Jewish law. And that was the agreement they had with the Romans. The Romans had to know who they were working with. So verse 13 plainly says Caiaphas was a high priest during his time. So why does John write here that Annas is the high priest? So let's learn a little bit about Annas and that will answer the question. So Annas officially served as high priest for 10 years. They think it was A.D. 6 to A.D. 15. That's what history records. Uh, when at the age of 36, he was de deposed, which means forcibly removed. And I'm going to say some names here, and I'm going to try to get them right, so it may not be. So you probably won't, won't know either if it's not right, but I'm going to get them close as I can. So he was forcibly removed at age 36 by the governor uh, Valerius Gratus. Yet while being, while having been officially removed from office, and, and this is history now, this isn't, you know, inspired, it's history. Yet while having been officially removed from office, he remained as one of the nation's most influential political and social individuals, aided greatly by the fact that his five sons and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, all served at some time as high priest. It has been said that he had a softer, kinder turn to him, but he was just as ruthless as Caiaphas. He was just better at it. He hid it better. Um, many of the Jewish people thought so much of Annas, they still considered him to be high priest. So, uh, this Valerius Gratus was the fourth Roman perfect, or prefect, which is a governor also, of the Judean providence under Tiberius. He was replaced by Pontius Pilate, who we'll get into here next. So, the one that did this changing around was replaced by Pontius Pilate eventually in 26 AD. Pilate is the governor when all this happened, and it's recorded as such in Jewish history. So it backs up the biblical account of these folks in place at the time they were in, in, in power. It, it agrees with the biblical account. So let's look over in Luke chapter 3 and verse 2. Luke chapter 3, verse 2. Luke also calls Annas and Caiaphas both high priests in Luke chapter 3 and verse 2. Starting in verse 1, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, Herod being, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Atyria, the region of Tetranatus, and Linanus, tetrarch of Abilene. While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. So verse 2 says, while Annas and Caius were high priests, like they were high priests at the same time, but they couldn't have been because it was against Jewish law. They, they wouldn't have done that so publicly. And it says the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. So Luke's not wrong. He's writing from inspiration the things that happened accurately. The Jewish people looked at both of them as high priests at the time, although Caiaphas officially held the office. So the actual order of events here, John got the order of events right, how he wrote about him too. The rest, the rest of um, the accounts of when Jesus left the garden, evidently they didn't know that Caiaphas 
was second, that Annas saw Jesus first. The actual order of events happened in that order. They took Jesus to Annas first, and then to Caiaphas second. They come up with a way to talk Pilate into crucifying him. So why would they take Jesus to Annas first before they took him to Caiaphas? Any thoughts about that? He's the father-in-law. He's older. He was high priest first, but he was not high priest now. Well, I mean, that's the reason. <laughs> so Annas still held a lot of power. So that was one of the reasons probably he went to Annas first because Annas still controlled a lot of things and Caiaphas was pretty ruthless, so he held his own weight in the Sanhedrin. He didn't need Annas to fight his battles. But they were all so connected. Some of the scholars that I read, stuff that they wrote about it, thought that Annas' house or where Annas lived was actually closer. So it might have been more convenient for them to leave the garden immediately and go to Annas to get out of this public eye. And they also had Roman accompaniment with them when they went to make the arrest. So if they have him in custody and they take Jesus to one of their palaces or one of their praetoriums or places of judgment, if they get Jesus inside that, then they can loose the Roman accompaniment and they can get rid of them. So then that gives them opportunity to come up with this made-up story about why they want to crucify Jesus away from the Roman guards that might go back and explain all this to Pilate. Now, all this is conjecture. It's not in there. But, you know, there's some reason why they went to Annas first, and I think that's in there somewhere. So any thoughts or comments about that? Yeah. Yeah. So they were kind of a package deal, and depends on where you stood on how you felt about it. You know, you would probably favor Annas over Caiaphas, but of course, Caiaphas actually held the official office. So that's a pretty interesting thing that I've read over this my whole life, and I didn't notice that until I was studying it this this time, studying through it. So interesting. Thoughts? All right, let's see where I want to go here next with this. I guess the next logical place to go is for us to talk about Pilate. It's about 7.36. We've got a few minutes. We can go ahead and start on Pilate, and it'll probably take me next Wednesday night to finish up on the study, and then, then we'll, be, we'll be done probably next Wednesday night. So Pilate is where we're headed with the study, so we'll go ahead and go to Pilate next. So tell you a few things about Pilate. There's no record of Pilate in his early life before he was governor, nor is there any account of his life after he left the position. As perfect or governor, Pilate was the fifth governor of the Roman province of Judea, and his responsibilities were he commanded the Roman military units, he authorized construction projects, was head of the judicial system, decided civil and criminal cases, arranged for the collection of imperial taxes for dispersing funds, including the mining of coins, Although Pilate spent most of his time in the coastal town of Caesarea, he traveled to Jerusalem for important Jewish festivals, like the one that the Jews are in the middle of whenever they arrest Jesus. So that's why Pilate would have been there at the time, at his residence there. Um, 
So he traveled to Jerusalem for important Jewish festivals. While in Jerusalem, he stayed in the Praetorium, which was either a former palace of Herod the Great or a fortress located at the northwest corner of the Temple of jo uh, Joseph. Uh, uh, Joseph at the northwest corner of the temple. Josephus states that Pilate governed for 10 years, and these are traditionally dated uh, somewhere around 26 to 36, 37 AD, making him one of the two longest serving governors of the province. So I guess why would it be important to notice from history that he served probably one of the longest two serving governors? Why do you think that would be? So if, if the person that would be in Pilate's spot as governor was letting things get out of hand, was causing problems, if there was a turmoil or an uprising or difficulty all the time, then they would just remove them. They'd just go remove them and put somebody else in their place. So the fact that he made it 10 years, I guess he'd done a pretty good job of making the balance between the Jewish folks and the Roman government. Um, let's see about this next. Let's see if I go the right direction here. There's one in between. That's what I'm looking for. So this is called the Pilate Stone. Let me tell you what this is. And you can see there's, there's some markings that's etched into this stone. Again, this is secular stuff we're talking about here. It's interesting to me when they find secular stuff that coincides with biblical stuff. So I don't put weight on it like I do the Scriptures because the Scriptures are inspired and this is not. So I'll explain it to you and, and this is what it is. It's a limestone block. It was discovered in June of 1961 by... Uh, an Italian archaeologist while excavating the area around an ancient theater built by decree of Herod the Great around 22 to 10 BC, along with the entire city of Caesarea. The artifact is a fragment um, with the inscription of a later building, probably a temple. So they took this from a later building, probably a temple, and put it in this structure that was built by Herod the Great. Um, probably from a temple that was constructed possibly in honor of the Emperor Tiberius, dating back to AD 26 to 36. The stone was then reused in the 4th century as a building block for a set of stairs belonging to a structure erected behind the stage house of the Herodian Theater. So this was on a set of stairs behind the stage house of Herod's Theater, the Herodian Theater, and it was discovered there, still attached to the ancient staircase by the archaeologists. So they they remove it, they they remove it out, and by the etchings on it, and they have to fill in some of the blanks. They they claim that it talks about Pilate, why it's called the Pilate Stone. They claim that it talks about Pilate, who would have been governor at this time. So talk about Pilate the governor. So that's why they call it the Pilate Stone. So it's an interesting thing to see with them as well. Another thing that I've got is a picture of money. Five minutes. I've got a picture of money that was minted during uh, Pilate's tenure. That's one of the things that he was responsible for. This is the backside of the coin. You can actually go online and buy some of these if, if your pocketbook's big enough. And you can have some of these. So these are coins that were minted during Pilate's time, and he would have overseen this uh, front and back of these two coins. So definitely don't have the fine detail and of course, the age of it may have something to do with it as well. So thought that was interesting, too, to see those. <clears throat> so I guess we'll probably stop there with the five minutes, probably got about four minutes now. Um, from this, we're going to get into the interaction when the chief priests 
um, finish up with Jesus and they're going to take him to Pilate. So next week we'll talk mostly about Pilate and about that interaction between Jesus and Pilate and what was said between them and the things that happened that got to the point of Jesus is uh, being scourged and then turned over for crucifixion. Any questions or comments before we end class? All right, thanks for your attention and your comments.